This is Mary Celeste Bell. Welcome to the Blackberry Podcast, where we'll dive into stories and knowledge of the incredible people that are part of the Blackberry story. You'll hear from longtime friends, amazing visiting personalities, and our own inspired team members. In 2019, we celebrated the 10th year of our Hospice Derone event at Blackberry Farm. In today's episode, you'll hear Food and Beverage Director Andy Chabot talking with Hospice Derone founder John Alban about how he got in the wine business and how his interest in Rome varietals changed the face of Rome wines in America. Thank you, John. This is Andy Chabot. John, thank you for being here today. I'm delighted to be here. Well, uh, I want to really just dive right in and uh, ask you a question about um, about why you decided to be a winemaker. That's a great question, and I feel so fortunate and still somewhat surprised that I did make that decision because I think I was born with a contract written in blood that said I was going to be a doctor. Oh, wow. That was and a family uh that's a thought. family tradition in the words of Hank Williams uh, <laughs> or Hank Williams Jr. But uh, I come from a long line of doctors. I'm super close to my dad who right. is about to turn 95 and is going to retire from being a physician on his 95th birthday. He is seeing his last patient on May 21st. It's coming oh, up. Wow. Uh, he was at the time he graduated from medical school during World War II. He was the second youngest person to graduate from an American medical school and immediately shipped out to the South Pacific. So he was 20 years old and he was the only doctor on an island in the South Pacific, taking care of both troops and the indigenous people. And this seems like a very long answer to your question, but it's important to it because my dad is the sort of doctor that everyone dreams they will get if they need a doctor, God forbid. It's just in his heart, in his soul. And my dad loves wine. He doesn't really know anything about wine. He just enjoys it. And he was one of the very early proponents of the health benefits of wine. Oh, wow. In fact, uh, at a time when it was legal for physicians to have ownership in hospitals, he and some partners started a hospital. And that allowed my dad to prescribe wine post-operatively back in the 60s. Oh, wow. That is the kind of doctor I hope to get. (laughs) Exactly. He was way ahead of the curve in many ways. And so his patients all put together that he loved wine and they all loved him. So they would send him gifts of wine as a thank you. And every week he'd come home from his office. He would have between eight and 20 bottles of wine about which he knew nothing, generally speaking. So we got a big Hugh Johnson's World Atlas of Wine. Yeah, yeah. And we did just what you would do if someone presented you with a bottle of wine you'd never heard of before, except you now have the internet uh, and a wealth of education. But still, there are wines that have to be new to you. You want what varieties or variety are they made out of? Is this something you age? Is this something you drink cool? So we would look it all up. And uh, I just enjoyed cataloging the wines and putting them away with him. Mm. I was about nine years old when we started this. Wow. My dad's very liberal. So sometimes we'd be having dinner and he'd turn to me and he'd say, was this the wine that's supposed to have the peaches in it? I "I think so, dad. Do you get peaches from it? And we'd have conversations like that. That's so awesome. Uh, The next part of this is that whenever we went on vacation, if there was a winery or a tasting room, he liked to go. 
And wow. again, being very liberal, he'd find a way to sneak me wines. If you mm. fast forward a little bit, we were getting these gifts of wine that came from all over the world. And this is the late 60s. And so these wines, as we looked them up, would be made from hundreds of grape varieties. But every time we went to a winery in California or got a California wine, it was made from one of two varieties. Hmm. It was either Chardonnay, Chardonnay or Cabernet. Yeah. And later on, we'd get something really bohemian made out of Pinot Noir. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then after that, there was maybe Sauvignon Blanc, but since Robert Mondavi called it Fumé Blanc, <laughs> nobody really knew what that was, so they stopped drinking it. Oh, wow. Okay. And as I got older, in a very simple way, by the age of 17, really being fascinated with all of this, I started to think there must be an amazing opportunity. This big state of California, which has myriad climates and a huge spectrum of soils, is making two wines. And like I say, again, in a very simple way, and all of this was simple because I come from a family with no vineyards, right. no farming background, no winery, and the closest spark of a mentor I had was a guy who would admittedly tell you he doesn't really know anything about wine. So that also means I had no bias. I had no preconception of anything. And I was so ignorant that I didn't even know how outlandish certain ideas were because I just didn't know any better. Right. So in a very simple way, I thought, gosh, this is like Baskin and Robbins. I'm a big ice cream fan. I live in a world of chocolate and vanilla. Yeah. I could introduce the next flavor. There's got to be room for coffee or coffee chip or something. Absolutely. Yeah. That part was really easy to say. The two parts that were really hard to say was one, as I started to go through college and became more and more convinced that this is what I wanted to do, I didn't know how I was going to tell my dad that because he was quite sure I was going to go to medical school. Were you going to undergrad to go to medical I school? I was pre-med. Okay. And... So my dad at one point got so desperate that he started to believe I really wasn't going to go to medical school. So he said, you're probably nervous that you can't get into a medical school. And he <laughs> knew me well enough to know how that would hit me, much like if I were to ask you if you're nervous about racing me on a bicycle. Right. I think I know how that would go down. Fair enough. So my dad said, if you get into medical school... This was a big mistake he made because it was almost like a Disney film. He didn't say if I went to medical school. He said if I got into medical school, he would send me on a one-month vacation anywhere in the world that I wanted to go. And that was my ticket to the wine country of France. Oh, wow. Okay. So I took him up on that. I went to France. And I have the dubious distinction of probably being the only person ever to get admitted to Davis Medical School and denied admission to their wine school in the same year. That is amazing. So you applied to I did UC apply Davis to Davis for wine. But I was missing one major component, and that was virtually all of the prerequisites for their program. <laughs> Just everything. Yeah. Uh, I went to Vassar for undergrad. Okay. And they don't have a strong ag school. Right. It turns out uh, they have no ag school. Yes. Um, and I think that's probably hopefully all changing and I'm about to make a comment I shouldn't, but the joke I made at the time is that I think the daughters of very wealthy people don't drive a lot of tractors. That's what I learned. Yeah. You know, I, I went to school near Vassar, um, at, at a culinary school and, and there were, yeah, you know, there were many things said about Vassar <laughs> back, back then, but Vassar is changing and it has changed some it's for, changed for, the, dramatically. for the good, for sure. Absolutely. 
So I took a year and I went to, this worked out great because I needed the prerequisites. Mm-hmm. I was able to take classes at Fresno State. And with that, I have the answer to a question very few winemakers have, which is I know exactly what the pluses and minuses are of the two premier wine schools in America. Hmm. Because I took the entire complement of winemaking classes at Fresno State. And then I went on to get my master's in grape growing and winemaking at UC Davis. So I went through both programs. And I'm not really a big proponent of the idea that Cooking school will teach you how to cook. I think you only learn how to cook by cooking, but it'll teach you a lot of great techniques. And because I knew nothing, I really needed a place to start. Yeah. And I figured I really needed those credentials to have any shot at getting a job. But also, as I researched more and more about what I wanted to do, I started to put together that I was going to need to get some kind of apprenticeship outside the country because if you're going to work with grape varieties that don't exist in this country, you aren't going to be able to learn anything about them here. So I also thought that might be the ticket to such an experience. Got you. And at this time, did you have varieties in mind or did you just want to know what was possible? I had so many ideas because I, I say drinking 500 plus different, and it wasn't even just varieties. It was types of wine and styles of wine. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I wasn't going to grow Chardonnay, but I've always been fascinated by Chablis. Right. Because as you well know, it's really wrong to call Chablis Chardonnay. You have to call it Chablis Chablis. because it has virtually no relationship with what we know of as Chardonnay. Yeah. And I I think to the point where I, I can't tell you how many times I hear, I don't want Chardonnay. I'd rather drink Chablis. Uh, or I will drink Chablis mm-hmm. um, when it's a hands down. I won't drink Chardonnay. So I, I think you're absolutely right. Chardonnay is its own its own thing, and that's how most people seem to to view it. So the permutations of grape varieties and then styles uh, are are endless, overwhelming, yeah, uh, nearly impossible. So the next incredibly difficult part of this was after I got over the hurdle of being able to tell my dad that I wasn't going to be a doctor. And you also have to understand that at the time I was doing this, because the logical question after that is, well, okay, what are you going to do? Right. And I was terrified of giving that answer because at that time, saying that you were going to major in winemaking was tantamount to the joke of, I was going to major in basket weaving. Right. In fact, it may have been more embarrassing than basket weaving. <laughs> it's just a hobby. It's <laughs> not something you do as a career. So I wasn't too comfortable divulging that. Sure. Uh, And I wasn't too comfortable divulging the idea that I was going to look at other varieties because the natural question is the one you just asked me. All right, which one or which ones? Yeah. And I was pretty lost on that. But I worked really methodically from the standpoint of, and this will all sound very obvious now, but again, I knew nothing when I started. So I think that really helped me because I stepped back and I said, obviously the single greatest factor in the quality of a bottle of wine is the quality of the grapes that you have access to. And the single biggest factor in the quality of wine grapes is the climate they're grown in. Now, people talk endlessly about soil and deservedly so, and we can touch on that later, but the reason they do is because the systems that exist in the world kind of preclude the question of what variety you're going to grow in a climate. So making this easy, for example, nobody wakes up in Burgundy and says, oh, how would Viognier do here? Right. It's already done. 
Yeah, the decision's so, been made. Yeah. And the change in the climate across all these famous vineyards of Burgundy is absolutely negligible, but the change in the soils is massive. So when you look at why are these wines so different and what, what, what drives the character of them, it is the soil. Again, because the climate's basically been ruled out of the equation. Right. So when you look at the climate in California, we have very few areas that duplicate the cooler vineyard areas of France, like Burgundy or Chablis. We just don't yeah. do that. And I had immediately dispensed with Bordeaux, of course, one, because we do that. Right. Uh, but for other reasons too. And so California has a lot of areas with a Mediterranean climate. We have lots Absolutely. of regions close to the ocean. We have Mediterranean architecture and it doesn't come from nowhere. Right. So that really started to help me focus in. But the seminal moment was I was about to celebrate my 23rd birthday in graduate school and a good buddy of mine in graduate school who knew my deal was I always wanted to drink a bottle of wine I'd never had before. That's sure. what I was always fascinated in. He said, hey, our birthdays are two days apart. We'll go out to dinner. We'll each bring a bottle of wine we're sure the other hasn't had before. No fun. I thought, terrific. Yeah. And he brought a bottle of wine that he called Conju. Got you. And I looked at it and said, uh, well, that's Condria. Yeah. He said, oh, darn it. You're familiar with it. I said, no, I've never heard of it. But I had studied French in, yeah. in high school Familiar and with French. Yeah. And the best thing, Andy, is that this guy had been given the bottle of wine as a gift. And because he'd been given the bottle from someone who was notoriously cheap, he thought it was a really cheap bottle of wine. Right. In fact, he was sheepish about it. And he said, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed because I know you bring a special bottle. I'm bringing something that's really cheap, but I think you're going to like it. Huh. I said, well, I don't know whether or not to be flattered by that, but I'm certainly <laughs> intrigued. Right. And I took one sip of this wine, yeah. and as you know, it was the perfect thing to, that could happen to me because Viognier is so overt yeah. and it d commands your attention. And this was spectacular. And I thought, my goodness, there is so much texture in this. And if you want to talk about myopia and wine and how there are very few varieties, it gets even more intense when you talk about white wine, because as you know, yes. Chardonnay is synonymous with white wine. When yeah. people come and ask you, what are you pouring? What white wines do you have by the glass? Yeah. They're really asking what Chardonnays are yeah. you pouring? Yeah, and white wine is relegated often by a lot of people to, um, to cocktail wine, or you know, we're going to drink this before we get to the Cabernet. That's kind right. Of thing. That's yeah. right. It's 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 the lesser. Yeah. Already, and it's supposed to be Chardonnay. Right. <laughs> so here was this thing with so much texture, such heady uh, flowers and deep exotic fruits, that I thought if I could make that as a cheap bottle of wine, the world's my oyster. Fair enough. <laughs> so I was so excited, I couldn't sleep that night. I couldn't wait to get to the research library on yeah. campus and learn all about Chondria. And that was fortuitous because at that time, no exaggeration, there were basically 12 sentences that had been published about Chondria. And upon reading them all, all 12, I was the equivalent of the world's foremost expert on Chondria. That's amazing, yeah. All I had to do was stay current. Right. Yeah. From there, just learn, learn what there is to learn. Um, and what, what was written? What did you learn from those 12 sentences? So I learned that it's extremely rare, <laughs> extremely expensive. <laughs> it, it comes from this little village that is at the northern tip of the Rhone Valley. 
and that it's a fickle grape that was on the brink of extinction. Hmm. Uh, those are the main things I learned about it. But I got really curious about the climate that it came from. And the tipping point for me was that that really became my gateway, if you will, sure. to my interest in all Rhone varieties. Hmm. And as I looked at the Rhone Valley, I got more and more excited because that's a climate that I knew we could duplicate in California. So that had great promise. I got a scholarship to move to Condria. Oh, wow. So it's kind of wild because the other thing I knew about Condria was that at that time it was it's a tiny little hamlet uh, with virtually no one there who spoke English. Right. And I, 12 months after having this bottle of wine, was living there. What an amazing story. I, I moved there. And then I did something that, again, I think was prompted by my complete naivete and just having no preconception about anything. Right. I went to the meteorological station, again, because climate's so important. I wanted to know as much as I possibly could about the climate that now I had expanded this to many Rhone varieties, Gruen or Gruen. I got about 40 years of climate data from different stations near. Hmm. And I looked at the climate in a very different way than I think it'll seem obvious now, but if I did one truly innovative thing in the way I researched yeah. this, it was this. So you're familiar with the Davis system. Yes. Where yeah, you yeah. break the, climate into five basic exactly. regions with the one being the coolest and five being right. the warmest. And, it, and based on degree days, essentially. Right, how, the high temperature of the day versus the low temperature giving you the average during the growing season. It's a way to say, what, what is Chateau Neuf like on average during the summer versus right. what is Burgundy like on average during the summer, mm -hmm. et cetera. And it was a breakthrough tool that Davis came up with that very much shaped the way California was able to sort of close the gap. I mean, when you look at really? the challenges we had. How to play catch up, sure. We started making wine after prohibition for all intents and purposes. And Europe had been making wine for 2000 yeah. years. Well, it's smart to learn from them then and, and to take that information. And Right, if you were a European winemaker, you could draw upon the experiences and the traditions of your family that might've been making wine on the same parcel of land for 15 generations. Yeah. If you were me, you were trying to figure out anything you could as fast as you could. What to do and where to do it. <laughs> so I then said, okay, here's, here's the climate under the Davis system. Right. What's different about the great vintages? So I went ahead and hmm. looked at what I knew to be great vintages, talked to growers about what they thought were great vintages. Then I went into books, in, this is all while I was living in France, right. and looked at what people said were great vintages in the early 1900s, great hmm. vintages in the 50s. And I took all of those and compared them to the average. And what you find is that there's a very strong correlation between unusually warm late season in the mm -hmm. great vintage, unusually warm September, October. Gotcha. And that for me was Eureka because there are parts of California where that happens so reliably that it is it would be an abnormality if it didn't happen. Okay. Sure. In fact, where I live, we have so many terms for it. There's Santa Ana's, there's Sundowners, mm -hmm. El Diablo. We have many, many terms for these things where the winds change direction. Mm -hmm. And instead of coming in from the Pacific, which is a cool wind, they come out of the Mojave Desert and it's a warm, it's a warm wind. wind. And we will get this unusually warm period, typically four of them, sometimes as many as six, oh, wow. but you can count on it. I see. So I got super excited about that. Sure. And 
that that really made me believe in Roan Rice. And and then there were so many other things along the way. You know, Alice Water with Chez Panisse was mm-hmm. really catching fire and deservedly so. And so much of her wine list was Roan inspired. And more and more restaurants were looking at Roan varieties because they worked with the food Absolutely. that we <clears throat> were preparing. Absolutely. I think, you know, when I look at the cuisine of Southern France uh, or the Mediterranean to a cuisine in this country, uh, you would think California cuisine, which wasn't, you know, really a term maybe then, but but I think now conjures up a certain idea of, of uh, vegetable forward, simply prepared food. And that's what you find in, in the Mediterranean. And I've often drawn, you know, um, comparisons between the pairings. When I see food like that, Rhone varieties and Rhone varieties in general are, I think, very friendly pairing varieties um, with with a lot of flavors, but particularly, I think, that that style. So it was, so it was all sort of happening at the same time. It was, and every little sign pointed in the direction of doing this, said, oh, wow. it is a good idea, just like that. And uh, on the on the note of Alice Waters, her inspiration was cooking in the home kitchen of Lulu Perrault right. of Domaine Tampier. Here's another Rhone connection mm-hmm. between what was taking flight in California. So I thought, I have to do this. So let's do it. Yeah. And so, and so you did it. You jumped in. Did you own land? Did you look for land? How did, how did that come about? I owned nothing. I okay. just had this idea. And later, my greatest possession, and it would turn out in terms of material possessions, in many ways continues to be my greatest possession. And that was these handful of sticks that I had. Oh, wow. Because if your grapevines are made from grapevines, so if you're going to make if you're going to make wines out of varieties that don't exist in this country, you need a way to get to sticks right? to propagate more vines. Okay. So I started out with sticks and I talked very desperate growers and you had to be desperate. And I would go to a grower and say, this is why you should cut the top off of your vine and pop in this variety that you've never heard of, that none of your friends have ever heard of, and none of you have heard of me, and I don't have a winery yet, but you should do this, because it's a great idea. Wow. So you're just going around to wineries saying, can, can you please graft this onto a vine of yours so that we can have this variety? Right. And no one else was really uh, focused on Rhone varieties at the time, or...? There were there were a handful of people. There were there were really five of us that were interested in Viognier, but you have to balance that interest. To give you an idea, the other four combined planted about one third what I planted in my first three mm-hmm. years. And they all had existing wineries that made worked with other varieties. And that was important in my story too, because it made me desperate. You see, I couldn't show you the Viognier of which I make 80 cases and then ask you if you want any of my 18,000 cases of Chardonnay. Right. I only had Rhone varieties, so they had to work for me. They Mm. couldn't be a novelty or uh, just a way to spark interest in the bigger thing that I was doing. Right, right. And of course, there was Syrah in California, but... We didn't know, the only certified material, and that's just a fancy term for something that's been quarantined, that's legal to release mm-hmm. and propagate as virus-free, et cetera, uh, was called Shiraz, which okay. of course, right. as you know, is what Australia Shiraz. refers to as Syrah. But this is at a time, Andy, when over half the Davis professors I talked to 
did not believe that Shiraz and Syrah were the same variety. Oh, wow. Now, that 60% was wrong and 40% was right. But how embarrassing would it be for me to go out in the world and put myself forward as the first person in America to establish a winery and vineyard exclusively for Rhone varieties and then screw them up, mix them up, <laughs> confuse them? Yeah, not know what you were doing. That right? wouldn't yeah. go so well. Well, trial and error. But. So I couldn't necessarily rely on the materials that were here. I see. Uh, and we had... We had pockets of these things for sure. We even have old plantings. And to a great extent, virtually every variety, I, I was able to track down Rusan that had been brought over by the Natoma Mining Corporation in the 1860s hmm. in California. And there are even notes uh, at Berkeley about the wine's performance. None of those things ever took flight and, right. and tracking them down would be very hard. And then even in the old vineyards, the vineyards were field mixed. So sure. there might be beautiful Grenache in it, but it could be mixed with 18 different varieties. And there was no grower that wanted to pick every 18th vine right. or farm every 18th vine right. for it's some guy who had nothing and Hard enough to convince no them to graft some Viognier. And certainly didn't want to pay a lot of money for it. Right. Yeah, because, you know, you had no working capitalizer. I had no beginning. way to do any of that. So wow. I really had to start very much from the ground up. Uh, but I got lucky because it was a time when the California wine industry was so depressed. I see. And one of the funny things that happened to me along the way is I had a conversation with someone who was very influential. And he said to me, well, why would anyone grow these varieties when the varieties we're growing right now are so hard to sell? Hmm. And I thought, well, listen to yourself. Yeah. That's exactly why we should exactly change varieties. Why. <laughs> why would you keep doing the thing? Now, his point was, that the industry is so depressed, why do you want to start with a new variety? Right. Why make it more difficult? Right. But it was a plus for me because there were growers, growers who had hung their hat on this Chardonnay Cabernet, mm -hmm. Cabernet paradigm, but they weren't in the marquee areas. So again, coming back to Cabernet, that will forever work if you're in Napa. It will work forever mm -hmm. if you're in Bordeaux. But even in Sonoma, where they make spectacular Cabernets, yeah. There's still second fiddle yeah. to Napa. It's Avis and Hertz. Avis, for all <laughs> I know, is a better rental company, but they'll always be Avis. They'll always be trying harder. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I was trying hard enough. The last thing I needed was a hundred years of bias against me. Absolutely. And that was a plus with what I was doing. Nobody had any bias about Viognier because nobody even knew what it was. So, so great. They just listened with open ears. So you were going around with this handful of... Um, cuttings, I suppose, that you brought from France or got from France, um, I assume from France, from the only place where Viognier was grown at the time, That's essentially. Right. And, and going around the country or California looking for people to graft this and grow it and propagate it. So you had enough vines, I suppose, or enough workable material. Were you also keeping your eye out at the time for what would become your estate or did you already know? I was taking advantage of the fact that I needed to propagate more sticks. And I had areas that I was really interested in, driven by those climate evaluations I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And through those evaluations, I wanted to hit one of a handful of California's coastal climates that had that classic Santa Ana condition oh. where they got warm, where they were cooler, long seasons, and then got warm in late September or right. October. And those areas were 
the Hecker Pass that heads mm-hmm. out to Santa Cruz. Uh, they were the district that runs out uh, through Lompoc, okay. the mm-hmm. Santa Inez yeah. Western side Western. Valley. Uh, it's commonly called the Santa Rita Hills now. Right. The Edna Valley and West 46 Passage through okay. Paso Robles. Okay. Those were really the areas that I thought, my goodness, the climate has so much potential. So I found growers in those areas. And again, because that wasn't Napa, wasn't Sonoma, the wine industry is depressed. There were growers who were having a very hard time giving away their grapes. So I found some people who were either intrigued enough mm-hmm. or in one instance, I actually found a gal who unfortunately her husband had passed away. It was their dream to retire to Paso Robles, oh. start a vineyard. I think the year she planted it, the tractor rolled and, and, oh, and wow. he perished. It was an awful story. But she said to me, I basically just need someone to take care of this place. So if you used my equipment, you paid all the expenses, you could have the fruit until you sell the wine. Because okay. she didn't really... So I used to joke that I basically became her gardener. Right, right. And that was a huge launch for me. Then it was a time when what we call custom crush was really starting to take off. And you could literally, and to this day it's true, you can custom crush, you can make wine in somebody's state-of-the-art winery for much less money than it cost me now to make wine in my own winery. Because incrementally, if you're as small as I am, the forklift I own could easily be taking care of a winery five times my size, but you can't buy one-fifth of a forklift and you can't buy one-fifth of a press, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, the the, uh, the opening cost of a winery, I mean, tanks, tools, barrels, all of it. Right. But in a custom crush situation, you literally buy it in the increment you need it. So you buy one barrel for one barrel's worth of wine. Right. And you don't have to buy the forklift to move that barrel around or the pallet jack to move it around, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a very affordable way to start. But also, I put vines in all these different valleys. Huh and made the wine separately because I needed to propagate sticks and grapes. And it gave me great insight into what was happening in all these areas. Oh, wow. So you were able to sort of see, you know, this area, the wine turns out like this, and this area turns out like this and sort of- Exactly. And to ask myself, what, what do, what's the most compelling to me and where would I want to be? And I wanted to go into one of the cooler areas. And I was really intrigued by the Edna Valley. And part of what intrigued me was, that the land that was being planted in the Edna Valley was all the flat land. Nobody mm-hmm. was planting any hillsides. I see. And with it, the hillsides were considered worthless. And the hillsides were also considered worthless because while the Edna Valley is one of the more desirable places to live in mm-hmm. San Luis Obispo County, the ordinances and the expense of building on a steep hillside pretty much precluded that land for being used for real estate. Oh, wow. They thought it was worthless as grape land hmm. and it couldn't be developed. So that was a very so, special opportunity so that for me. equals affordable. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> the challenge was finding anything for sale. And I did look in the other areas. So I spent about seven years looking for property. And one day a friend called me and said, I think I found exactly what you're looking for. Hmm. I said, wow, what is that? And he went on to describe this piece of land that was three times the size of what was right. even my Far end of the equation. And when I asked a question that almost anyone might ask about a piece of land, which is, well, how much is that? (laughs) He said, oh, well, it's not really for sale, but I was having breakfast with the owner and he said, 
you know, he might be willing to part with it. And I thought, that sounds like a guy I can really drive a hard bargain with. Yeah. I might part with it. Yeah, I might. Like anyone also that can just give up, you know, a chunk of land, you know, hopefully he didn't need it. Well, we know how it turned out, I suppose. It turned out that because uh, what I was doing dovetailed with some other things that would enhance the property he owned around it. I see. It, it became more appealing to him. Oh, wow. Okay. And uh, the other part, which I actually believe is true, is that I was told later by a very dear friend of his who then came on to work for me many years later that he always believed that my idea was so ridiculous, I would improve the property, I would make these payments and, and return it to him. Eventually fail and- <laughs> And it yeah. would be his. Wow. I, but I don't, I, I feel uncomfortable saying that because it adds a negative element that it really, that I don't think was there. He was happy to give me my shot. Yeah. And I feel forever grateful for that. That's an amazing uh, thing. And I think that that story when told that way sort of sounds like he had a shrewd or fiendish. I didn't experience it that yeah. way. It sounds more like a backup plan than it does a, a reason for doing it. Yeah, yeah. I experienced it more like a very friendly pit boss who said, if yeah. you want to make that bet, I'll go mark that bet. Go ahead. Yeah. Hmm. Well, amazing. Well, I'm glad it turned out the way it did. And so- all this time you were making wine at a few different places and in a few different ways. Uh, were any of those labeled under your label or did that wait until you planted your estate vineyard? So the first wine released under the Alban label was from the 1991 vintage. 91, And okay. it was Viognier and Roussan. Okay. And none of the grapes were from what is now my estate vineyard. They were all from test blocks a small amount from the Edna Valley, the vast majority from that nice lady's property of course. on the west side of Paso Robles. Okay. Uh, in 92, I released the first wines that came from what you now know of as the Alban Vineyard, but it was small amounts because I didn't have enough sticks or money to, to plant. Mm. And then a real change that catapulted this story was Rhone varieties got so hot and oh, people wow. got so interested in them and there were no materials. And I ended up having a product that I had not really anticipated, which were these precious sticks. I see. So I became a profitable nursery long before I was a truly profitable winery. Wow. What catapulted Rhone varieties, um, I mean, apart from maybe your hard work and, and such, but what? Well, that's a great question. I, I think they're, their time had come and there were a handful of people who were working with the varieties, like I say, mostly as a sidelight. There sure. were people who were working at them uh, in earnest. And I would have to speculate a lot, but sure. one, one thing I would say is that, and I'm hesitant, and my answer <laughs> I think is gonna surprise you because you know me awfully well, but I do think I have to say that my Desperation certainly accelerated a number of things because I needed to build this interest. So for every bottle of Viognier I made, which were you know my first year, right. 407 cases, 
I went all over the country talking to people about this. So yeah. there was a lot of noise made, well, especially by me. And that's a little why I asked the question, because I had to assume that was the case, that you were out there sort of pounding the pavement to to get cuttings and propagate vines. And then you had a product that you had to sell to keep doing it. Um, and, and I had to assume that, I mean, you know, desperation does a lot of things. Um, but in, in your, you know, search to, to be successful and to, to make this happen, that, that you were a force for this. So, but I can't discount and I would never discount how important all the other producers, whether they were just doing it for fun, because I was organizing all kinds of tastings and, uh, seminars and different events early on inviting them. Hmm. So, uh, we did an event in Aspen early on oh, wow. uh, that was called, uh, it was Viognier, not just for breakfast was, oh, the, wow. yeah, yeah. was the title of that one. And actually that was at Vail, excuse me, now that I think okay. about it. Uh, that was at Vail and George Vernet's son, Daniel, oh, wow. lived in Colorado at the time, very close to Vail, either in Vail or in Denver. Wow, I didn't know that. And yeah. he agreed to come and pour the Vernet wines. Oh, wow. And this... Things like this really sparked a lot of interest. And I know you can appreciate it as a psalm. Our trade is so traditional, it's rare that anything truly new comes along. Absolutely. So something new and genuine crossed your desk, you would pounce on it. Yeah, absolutely. So sommeliers were fascinated by all of this. Mm. And it had elements, it was a good story, it was genuine, and it had elements of controversy because as these events happened and people got excited about Viognier, you could quickly see the producers who made 200 cases of Viognier and mm -hmm. 20,000 cases of Chardonnay not wanting the spotlight on Viognier, even though that's why we were all here. Yeah. So it was fun to watch that dynamic that's unfold. So those events, did they bring you know, their Chardonnays as well and sort of try to get into the what event? They, they would, or they would start to talk about Chardonnay. Right. So soon they, they would talk about Viognier in terms of all the things it's it's not, as people are getting excited. They say, well, you have to understand, it's great right. as an aperitif, or it's this and it's that. And I would sit there fascinated, Andy, thinking, dude, you are bashing your own wine now. Yeah. You came here, you came all the way to Vail, or Albany, New York, or right. Dallas, Texas. I mean, I was all over the place and even a little bit internationally, but I couldn't really afford that. I did some things in Austria and Switzerland, oh, but mostly it was in the States. Uh, that was just trippy to me. But the other part was I could see who were the kindred spirits. Yeah. And soon I said to friends, look, we're going all over the world. I see you here. I see you there. Yeah. Why don't we join forces. Why don't we do an event together oh, wow. and have everyone come to us because we could reach a critical mass where an Andy Chabot would say, well, that's fascinating. That's worth a trip. He's not yeah. going to come visit me. I'm not worth a trip. I got 407 cases of Viognier and 22 cases it's, of Roussan. It's worth debating. But <laughs> Well, that's very generous. <laughs> but at the time, I would fa have found that unimaginable. And that was the birth of Hospice Derone. That was the birth of Hospice Derone, or as we call it, HDR around here sometimes. So when was that? What year was that, the first? So by then, uh, and to do justice to that story, I was contacted 
by Matt Gerritsen, who I'd never heard of. I see. And that's a long and fun story, but we don't have time for it. We'll make that another <laughs> podcast because that unto itself, uh, how he even found me. But he told me about this tasting of Viognier that he wanted to put together. And he started a group he called the Viognier Guild. And I was fascinated oh, wow. by that. And of course, at the time, since I had nearly by then doubled the world's acreage of Viognier, I thought, if you're starting a Viognier Guild, I should be member one. Let's uh, pause for a second and think about what you just said, that you doubled the acreage of Viognier in the world when you planted how many acres? So I planted 32 acres of Viognier at a time when there were fewer than 40 that were recognized within the In the world, the in Congreau, I guess. And, and Chateau Grier. Sure. And then there were uh, rogue plantings around Chateau Neuf and in Provence. But right. but what was sanctioned and really documented and recognized was a little less than 40 acres at that Amazing. time. Amazing. You really jumped in with both feet. Uh, so yeah, you, so you should have been, you know, number one member of the Viognier. And I got guild. to be. Okay. <laughs> Terrific. <laughs> I mean, what an incredible achievement. I was the first member of a basically non-existent organization. You're the first. And how many members were there? <laughs> well, there were two then. There were two. So there okay. was an organizer and one member, I guess. <laughs> okay. And I went to this tasting, which was the first time I met Matt. And I thought the idea was fantastic. And it really dovetailed with something that I had been working on with producers. So sure. we should come together. And here was the chap who wanted to do the marketing, didn't have a winery, but was really interested. So afterwards I talked to Matt and I said, look, if you would do this, a similar thing in California, mm -hmm. we would have such an incredible turnout because it's so avant-garde. We, we really would have a fascinating yeah. group that showed up and we'd make it quite exclusive. I offered to host it at my winery. Hmm. And I said to him, but what I want to do is broaden it to all Rhone varieties. So it went from the Viognier Guild to Raisin Rhones. Okay. And long story short, over the years, that Evolved. blossomed into Hospice de Rhone. We wanted to get a name that incorporated all Rhone varieties, but also that had an international appeal because we wanted to be an international group. I see. I which see. is what we are today. So that kind of went along and evolved and eventually you're doing it at the, the fairgrounds in Paso. We and quickly outgrew my winery. Yeah, I can, um, I can <laughs> believe it for sure. But that first event was pretty fascinating. If you saw the people who came to it, uh, a lot of elite wine writers, we had Jancis Robinson at that. Uh, wow. No, not Jancis, not at that one. That's okay. right. I'm sorry. We had Manfred Crankle, oh, who wow. offered to cater the food through Campanile. Really? And also participate uh, in a seminar. Sense. Okay. He didn't have a winery yet. Sure. But he sure. was fascinated with Rhone varieties and a huge proponent of them. The Arajos came, even though... They make uh, a little Viognier they made and Syrah a tiny time, trickle, <laughs> and But they came and wanted to, to be there. So it, it was... It was quite a group wow. uh, that that did participate. And then we started to roam to other vineyards. We let people who I had see. venues that were larger offer to host it. We moved to a few different locations and that was really tough because it was so hard to stage the event and to stage it in a foreign place each time. Yeah. And these places were very far from where Matt lived so you can imagine trying to organize it and not really knowing what infrastructure was going to be available sure, to us. Sure, and for the attendees uh, to have to find a different place every time as well could be challenging, I assume. So that went on for a few years and then we settled on the only place in our county that is large enough to oh, got you. Okay. 
to host that. And that's the fairground. The fairgrounds. The Mid State Fairgrounds yeah. where we remain today. Amazing. That's amazing. And so uh, you know, at some point, um I guess, you know, it, it kind of grew and grew and, and was rolling and rolling and um we decided and this was ten years ago now to to do an HDR at Blackberry Farm. Now, um, what was the conversation like there? Was that between you and Sam Bell at the time? or That was a conversation between me and Sam. And I think you'll really appreciate this, perhaps even more profoundly than I can appreciate it. I never decided to have a hospice to own at Blackberry Farm. <laughs> I see. But I love hospice to own at Blackberry Farm. And I loved the idea of having an event here. Sure. Who wouldn't? So I have to say 110%, I am sure that the idea of Hospice Derona Blackberry Farm was Sam's. Got you. Because it was never my idea. <laughs> Did you see it printed in the, the pamphlet? <laughs> I, I, I never imagined that Blackberry Farm would open its doors to this rabble. Well, uh, fair enough, but a good rabble for sure. And I certainly never envisioned that it would happen again. So during the first event, Sam came over to me, I believe it was the very first night, I see. and said to me, and I won't try to do his accent or the slow pace. <laughs> it's, it's tough, but it's tough. <laughs> or the slow yeah. pace at which the words came out. But in a very unassuming, very easy mannered way, Sam said to me, you know, it'd be a real plus if we could tell the guests this weekend the dates for next year's event. <laughs> so I'm sitting there, Andy. In my mind, we haven't even started the first one. <laughs> and I'm thinking, how on earth is this guy so confident that his guests are going and he are going to want a second one when he hasn't experienced whatever the first one might be? But as you know. Yeah. As I, I mean, super uh, amazing event. And, and now 10 years into it, I'm glad that that conversation happened because I get to have hospice to roan every year here at Blackberry Farm. Um, and then it's a, an amazing event. You know, the Rhone wines touch, touch me. Um, I think this similarly to how they do for you. There's just something about them that I can't escape to jump around a little bit. I want to go back to your winery, your family, is is obviously very important to you to the point where a number of the labels on your wines have names of family members or photos or pictures of family members talking about your father um you know seymour on one of the labels you have um lorraine's name on one i guess you know, petrina's in there as well somewhere some people don't put their family out there like that well what made you do that what so I'll tell you the story that I have told many times, and then I think I'm going to tell you what I believe may in fact be the truth that I've only embraced recently. So a story that is genuine was when I was working on notes for this fledgling winery. For some reason, I wrote down that the one thing I was never going to do was name any of my wines for family members. <laughs> Why I thought that was important to note it's I interesting did. that idea was in your head though. Yeah. And I wrote down that I wasn't going to do it. Right. And when I was looking at the property that is now Alban Vineyards, here's this virgin piece of land. There's no map to it. It's never been farmed. 
So as I'm looking at the soils, I needed some way to document where these soils came from so that I could in fact generate a map. And one of the areas I was really fascinated with was this ridge. And I think it was too hot. I was working in the sun. I was working too many hours. And I named that ridge Reva's Ridge. Oh, wow. And it was a play on words because my mom's name is Reva. And there's a famous Kentucky Derby racehorse winner named Reva's Ridge. Yeah, yeah. It was a ridge. I called it Reva's Ridge. I ended up buying that piece of property. I ended I up planting that ridge to Syrah. And so everything from that moment forward was called Reva. The, that huh. block was called Reva because it was Reva's Ridge. The barrels were called Reva. The lots were Reva 1, Reva 2, Reva okay. 3. As the years went by and I was ready to bottle it, so we'd what? been calling it Reva for what else years. Are you going to call it? Yeah. <laughs> so I thought, I should call it Reva. And I'm a mama's boy. I am completely a mama's boy. Fair enough. So it worked it was... for me. And I would say about five minutes after I pulled the cork out of the very first bottle, which I opened and unveiled to my mom. She had no idea I was oh, making wow. a wine called Riva. My dad turned to me and said, so? Where's my wine? <laughs> I said, so what? And he said, so when are you gonna name a wine for me? <laughs> and I quipped, cause as you know, I'm a quipper. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know if that's a word. It is now. Thank you. Yeah. I quipped. They're all named for you. You're Alban. Yeah, fair enough. And that bought me about 30 seconds. I'll bet. I really didn't think I was ever going to make another wine named for a family member. I had this block of Syrah that I was fascinated with. Mm -hmm. And it was really at a time when nobody needed, arguably nobody needed one Syrah, but I sure as heck didn't need two Syrahs. Right. But I wanted to keep it separate. And over the period of time that it took me to turn that little block into a barrel of wine, I fell in love with this Irish gal named Lorraine, mm -hmm. proposed to her. It ran concurrent with bottling up the wine. So I thought, you know what? It's one barrel. For one time, I'll name it Lorraine and we'll serve it at our wedding. And that's what I did. Wow. But 90% of our friends either work in the wine trade, the hospitality trade, right. or have restaurants. Right. <laughs> so after the wedding... I had all these faxes, which tells you the era. Yeah, I had it on yeah, a computer. Yeah. <laughs> and all the faxes said something like, when do we get Lorraine? Right, when's and the I release? Thought, that's yeah. the most inappropriate thing to say after <laughs> a dead. Like, you know, you just got married. <laughs> <laughs> so I was thinking you should get your own Lorraine, but I said, let me see what I have left. And I divvied it up and, and it went on all these and That was the beginning. Wine lists. Yeah. And I had a block that I was really, really working hard on that I knew would be our premier block one day. And at that point I thought, my dad's really the inspiration. I'm in so deep at yeah. this point. Just keep so going. I, and so I named it for my father. That's the only one that depicts a family member as far as I know. That is true. So an, an amazing label with uh, Seymour sitting in a chair holding a glass of wine. Um, a really amazing label when you get a chance to see it. Yeah. Thank you. That is a, an artist's rendition from a photo that was taken on our honeymoon. And my dad oh, wow. was actually sitting in a rocking chair at the Bushmills Inn, which is about 400 oh. years old in Northern Ireland. And he was holding a pint of Guinness. Oh, wow. And I took it to the same artist who did the Alban labels. And I said, Rick, I wanna turn this photograph into a label. I need you to excise that 
pint of Guinness from his hand, put in a Riedel Syrah stem. <laughs> Needs to be a nice glass of wine, in Syrah no less. And it's sweet for me because my wife and I were on our honeymoon. And right. how romantic is it to take your parents along on your honeymoon? How often do you go to Ireland, you know, at that time? We I'm were sure. there for a reception with her extended oh, wow. family who couldn't make it to California so. for our wedding. So we had sort of a second wedding oh, that wow. her extended family could attend in Ireland. And then took advantage of that to travel around. So that's that picture is very dear to me oh, wow. for, on a number of levels. That's great. I love that it should be a pint of Guinness, but was was changed. And so, uh, you know, things happen as they do. You have children. And uh, what's the future of Albin Vineyards? Um, that is a great question. And I'm shocked to be able to say that I've gone from a time in my life where I really wondered, I had a, I have a bookkeeper to this day who is the same bookkeeper that would come in on every Friday Really, when I started Alban Vineyards uh, and finally could afford someone to help me do, I did payroll and all that stuff myself for years, but when I could finally afford someone to come in once a week and Andy, for the first 12 years of Alban Vineyards, I thought every Friday, this is the day where Lisa turns to me and says, John. It was a great try. Time to close it down. <laughs> we're, we're done. <laughs> but that didn't happen. And now I am on the verge of being a generational winery. Our oldest boy, Jared, is studying wine and other subjects in college and hospitality, frankly, and wants to wants help to me out. And he's been working in the winery on his breaks and over the summer. And I think he's quite genuine, even though I... I think I overreacted to the way my dad dealt with me. Yeah. So I never talked about the winery with my sure. kids. I never talked about winemaking, thinking, of course, it'd be lovely if one right. of them wanted to do it, but they need to do what they want right. to not do. Not wanting to push them or force them to, to do something. And I think I got so exaggerated with that, that when he told me he wanted to become a winemaker, I didn't really believe him. <laughs> <laughs> like, no. Huh. That's, that is amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. I mean, I'm glad I think future generations of wine drinkers uh, should be glad that that there's a, a future to it um, because I'm sure you you didn't have any idea when you first started it what the what was going to happen no I was in so deep uh, that I really tell people it was a lot like jumping out of a plane mm. and then wondering about a parachute and wondering about all these things <laughs> And in that moment, there's not a lot of time to think about anything but the next second. Right. And eventually I got caught up enough that I can look forward uh, and I can now believe that there's a 10th hospice own at Blackberry Farm uh, and that there are all these wonderful, passionate wine lovers and wine producers around the world who work together on this same idea and it's catapulted it to where it will be generational for my family and for so many of the families that have come here to showcase their wines. Absolutely. And there will be an interesting Hospice de Rhone um, in a few years if we can. The next generation. The next generation. I would love to have that. That would be an amazing event. I will drink um, to that. Event. Well, cheers. John Albin, thank you so much for uh, spending time with us, telling us your story and um, for being such a great friend and winemaker. Cheers. Thank you, Andy. Thank you for listening to the Blackberry Podcast. Continue following the journey wherever you subscribe. Thank you to our guests, interviewers, and audience. Dive into more stories, videos, photos, and podcast episodes 
on blackberryfarm.com and blackberrymountain.com. Make a great day.